Okay, so this morning we're in Acts chapter 27. We are so close to being done with the book of Acts. We have this week and we have next week. We'll be in Acts chapter 27. Something happened on Sunday, January 25th, 1736. Raise your hand if you were born on that day. That changed the course of history. On that day, a man stood on a sinking ship, and he saw something that impacted him so profoundly that he would later write about it in his journal. Men have journals. Women have diaries. Men have... Men have... Okay, journals, you got to get that because I'd hate for some guy to go out of here and go, so last night I was writing in my diary. Don't do that. Men have journals. Women have diaries. And here's what he wrote in his journal. Now, this is not in modern day English or even southern, but hang on. We'll try to make it work. At seven, I went to the Germans. These were Moravians. At seven, I went to the Germans. I had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior. These were not party animals. Of their humility, they had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices for the other passengers, which none of the English would undertake, for which they desired and would receive no pay, saying it was good for their proud hearts, and their loving Savior had done more for them. Let me just translate that. These were the people cleaning toilets, okay? They would do anything. It didn't matter how small the job was, they would do it. And why would they do it? Because in their own words, it was good for their proud hearts, and their loving Savior had done much more for them. Make sense so far? With me? Okay. And every day had given them occasion of showing a great meekness which no injury could move. If they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away. But no complaint was found in their mouth. There was now an opportunity of trying whether they were delivered from the spirit of fear as well as from that of pride, anger, and revenge. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, they're on a boat, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. Are you with me so far? Have you seen a movie Titanic? Okay, just picture that in your mind, all right? This is in total chaos. A terrible screaming began among the English, but the Germans calmly sung on. So the, the English are panicked and running around freaking. They're the ones that are pushing kids and women out of the way to get on the lifeboats, right? They're the men, if those are men. And the Germans are calm in the middle of that storm. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? And he answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? And he replied mildly, no. Our women and children are not afraid to die. From them, I went to their crying, trembling neighbors and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between he that fears God and he that does not. What that man saw eventually led to his conversion as a follower of Jesus. From that day forward, John Wesley would go on to found, be the founder of the Methodist Church. He would preach an average of 15 sermons a week. Preached over 40,000 sermons over his lifetime, along with his brother Charles. They published 56 collections of hymns over 53 years. That's busy. Would you agree? That's getting it on right there. Along with um, all of them started it, by, it all started by watching the way those Moravians reacted on the deck of a crippled boat during a life-threatening storm. And so today we're in Acts 27. We're going to see that happen in Paul's life. We're going to see Paul on the deck of a ship very similar to that. And we're going to see five things he did, five observations that Paul did. 
on that boat that can help us in stormy times in our lives. Now, I asked you, what were you most afraid of as a child of storms? What did you say? Lightning? Tornadoes? Sharknadoes? Did I say that right? <laughs> Wendy, um, I'm not picking on Wendy today, but it sounds like it. Um, she was also afraid of storms as, as a child, and I found this out. Uh, you know, because when you're dating, you kind of talk, right? Do you remember, some of you, this was a long time ago, but you kind of talk while you're dating and you find out things about each other. And so she lived in Irmo, South Carolina, home of the Okra Strut, and I lived here. So, you know, we would drive back and forth, and sometimes we'd be in the car. So we were going down Interstate 77, and there was a storm. And so, you know, she just mentioned that she was scared of storms as a child. It's okay. It's a storm right now. She just mentioned she was scared of storms as as a child, and so as we're driving along, she eventually said that she also still today as an adult, a little bit scared of storms. And me being, um, let's see, what's the nice term that we can use in church? A smart butt. I saw lightning flash. And so I knew that thunder was coming. And so before the thunder came, I just went, BAM! While, while she was driving. And she married me. What's up with that, right? I was laying in the bed last night with Sydney, and, and Sydney made us a card yesterday, not for any reason. It was not our anniversary or anything like that, but she just made us this big card that said, the day that you first met. And she was talking about how, you know, my favorite color is orange and hers is green. And so she had words that had both those colors in it and how, you know, we first met yada, yada, yada. It was cool. So we're laying in bed, and I said, do you know when I first met your mom? And she said, no. I said, well, we were in college. And she said, Dad, was it? Was it love at first sight? And I said, well, yeah, I, I maybe. But let's just say this. I was in love with your mom before she was in love with me. And she said, oh, okay. I said, so when, when I asked mom to marry me, why do you think she married me? Do you think she married me because I'm awesome or because she lost a bet? <laughs> and Wendy said, oh, she lost a bet. Thanks, honey. It's so sweet of my daughter to tell me that. So, anyway, all that about storms. Here's what I want you to get today. Here's the big idea. I'm going to tell you first, and we're going to talk about five observations we can make. Here's the big idea. Storms, storms won't scare you when you let the Lord prepare you. That was my best attempt at poetry today. Storms won't scare you when you let the Lord prepare you. Here's the five things that we can learn from Paul. It's all in Acts 27 and a little bit of 28. Um, Let's pick it up in verse 3. Acts 27, 3. The next day, we landed at Sidon. And Julius, Julius is a centurion. He's the one in charge of the people on the boat. Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the, to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Um, here's the first thing that, that I want you to get. Number one, trust the word of God. Okay? Trust the word of God. Let me just catch you up um, to what's going on right now. There's a lot of places that they name in the first eight verses. They're not going to make any sense to us. So let me just kind of get you through the first few days of their itinerary. They get on a boat in Caesarea, and they travel 70 miles in one day to Sidon. That's where they are in verse 3. 
The next leg gets a little bit tougher. They get on the boat there, and they go around Cyprus to Myra in Lycia. And that took about 10 to 15 days to go 300 miles. Um, this is Myra in Lycia. Everybody say Myra. A little trivia time. There was this guy in Myra, not at the time of Paul, and he was famous for his generosity. And the most famous thing he ever did in Myra was there was this man who had three daughters, and the man was very poor. He was so poor he didn't have a dowry for the weddings. And so this, this man in Myra that was famous for his generosity, he took a sack of coins, and late one night he threw the coins into the window of this poor man. And the man took the coins, and he used that to pay the dowry for his daughters to get married. So basically what that man did is he saved those three girls from an absolutely sure life of prostitution. Because that was the only way they would have ever survived. Because the father was so poor, he could not have them married. That man became famous for that act, continued to be generous, and his name was Nicholas. He later became a saint, which would make his name Saint Nicholas, the real-life Santa Claus. He was in that city, Myra. That was just for all the nerds that want to know that stuff. You can go to lunch today and tell somebody, hey, I know who the real Santa Claus is. There you go. St. Nicholas. All right, back to the boats. So they're in Myra. The travel has become a lot slower. The man in charge is Julius, and it's so slow that he decides we're going to switch boats. We're going to try to find a faster boat. So they find another boat, and they start to travel. The weather gets worse. And they could not go where they intended. The Bible says that they finally landed in a place called Fair Havens. So the leg from the third leg took 10 to 15 days again. So you got to get it. One day they go 70 miles. That's flying, right? That's pretty quick on a boat. And then the next trip is 15 days to go 300 miles. Okay, a little slower. And then the next leg is 15 days to go 150 miles. That was a tough leg. Agreed? took a little bit longer to get where they were going. They finally landed in Fair Havens, and that's where we're going to pick this up. The centurion had to decide what to do, stay in Fair Havens for the winter or press on. Verse 9, much time had been lost because of the slow sailing, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the feast. The feast is the Day of Atonement. That typically happened in September or October, kind of the time of year that it is now. And any sailor, any sailors in the house? Okay, no. But any sailors back then, they knew that once you got to the middle of September, to the middle of November, travel on the sea was next to impossible. And once you got past November, don't even think about it. And so since that date had already come and gone, Paul warns, he warns the centurion in verse 10. Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo into our own lives also. Have you ever had a man of God give you a word from God? Or even a woman of God, not just, I don't mean man of God like gender, but just somebody in, somebody in authority, somebody that knows God, somebody can speak in your life. They give you a word from God, and when you get that word, what do you have to do? You have to decide whether you're going to listen to it or you're not going to listen to it. Yeah, so what does the centurion do? He probably did what most of us would do. He went to other people around him and said, so I got this word from God. What do you think about it? And he started to take a poll of the people. Is this starting to sound similar to maybe politics? Right? 
Don't you hate politicians that know the right thing to do, but they won't do it because they took a poll and they found out if they do the right thing, they won't get reelected? Those are the people that we want to get out of office, correct? Because we want men of integrity, women of integrity to lead us. And so Paul gives him a very clear word from God. This is a man of God. Paul is a man of God. And he says, look, if you keep going, it's going to be disastrous. I know that we'll lose cargo. I know that we'll lose stuff on the ship. And it's possible that we'll lose people's lives as well. Now, here's the sailor. He already knows this is not a good time to be sailing, and yet he's going to go anyway. Look what, it, look what he does with it. Verse 11, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. These are not real strong, confidence-filled words, right? The majority decided, hoping. Well, hey, let's just go for it. Let's give it a shot. Let's just hope we get there. The majority said, let's go. So they took off. The clincher in the whole thing, not just that the majority said, hey, let's go, because the majority may rule, right? This is America, isn't it? Does the majority still rule? Yes, the majority does rule. People are elected over popular votes. The majority may rule, but is the majority always right? <laughs> that was a lot easier to answer, right? Yeah, obviously, the majority is not always right. So just because everybody says we should do it doesn't mean that we should. So, but the clincher is in verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Listen, it wasn't enough that there was a three-to-one vote. Paul being the one guy that said don't go. The other three saying let's go for it. So he loses the majority vote. But then they had this southwest, this south warm breeze begin to blow, which was a total change in the weather. Um, I was going to show you this clip, but I couldn't because there was a bad word in the middle of it. But if you've seen the perfect storm, then think about when they think they're in the middle of this fight, and all of a sudden, right towards the very end, the sun breaks. And just for about 30 seconds, they're all like, yeah, we did it. We're going to get out of here. And then the sun's gone. And then the huge wave that might as well be like 300 walls. And it's just that goes up and they die. That's what happened here. They're in the middle of this awful weather. Trying to say, what, what should we do? Do we go? Do we not go? And then suddenly they think they got what they wanted. Have you ever thought that you got what you wanted and made a decision on that? And then like not very long into it, you realized, oh, crud, this was not the best decision. That's where they are. Just like those men in a perfect storm, when that sun went away and they realized, oh my goodness, it's going to get worse now. That's where these guys are. They think that they've got what they want. Let me just tell you this. If you rely on the majority, if you rely on a popular vote, if you rely on your senses, you could make moves that you will later regret when you have the word of God. Trust the word of God. Here's the second point. Life turns on a dime. That's a great expression. Life turns on a dime. That's what you want when you have a really nice handling car. You, if you're a wide receiver in, in the NFL, you want to be able to make a cut on a dime. You want to be able to turn quickly. How many of you have experienced life turning on a dime? If you've not ever been, if you're thinking like big stuff, just think about driving to Walmart and you're halfway there and you're just like, 
you got the radio on, you're just kicking back, you're having a blast, you're singing so loud even if you don't know the words of the song, and all of a sudden in your, your rearview mirror you see blue lights. Did life just turn on a dime for you? Uh-huh. And depending on what kind of dime it was, you're trying to get rid of stuff, right? <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. I got I to gotta say, I, thought, I think you should have reacted better than that. I think that was pretty good. So life... <laughs> Life turns on a dime. Look, verse 13 sounds fantastic. Gentle south wind, little drink with an umbrella. It sounds so good. But look at the first three words of verse 14. Before very long. A wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. Now, this is a bad storm. Um, I've not been in a bad storm. I was on a cruise. I've been on two cruises in my life. Second cruise was a blast. The first cruise, not so much because we were a day ahead of a hurricane. So every event got canceled. They'd be like, hey, we're docking, but you can't get off. So we just, everywhere you walk, you're, you're rocking on the boat, a little seasick. And it's just not fun being in front of a hurricane. But that's not bad, right, because it's a big ship. You can kind of handle it. But I brought a few pictures, if you don't mind throwing them up there. These are actual pictures from nor'easters, okay, um, I don't, this is just a house on, you can just fly through them, I think I got five of them, I want you to know when we read about a storm in the Bible, this is not like, you know, a drizzle, this is big stuff, I mean, can you imagine being on a ship, a little ship, in that, that's where they found themselves, that's not a gentle south wind, that's not sun shining, that's before very long, life turns on a dime. It was a horrific storm. They almost lost the lifeboat. If you, if you read the next few verses, you'll find here's what they had to do in the storm to try not to die. They had to bring the lifeboat on board. They had to take lots of ropes and actually try to tie the boat together so it wouldn't fall apart. They end up throwing over cargo. And then the next day, they threw, up all, they threw over all the rest of their supplies. In verse 20... We find 276 people on a boat drifting at the mercy of a storm with no hope of being saved. Verse 20 says, we, we neither, When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Man, can you relate to that? Some of us in here have found ourselves adrift at the mercy of situations simply because, like the centurion, we ignored a very clear word from God. And some of you are here, man, your life is messed up. And it's because you ignored a very clear word from God. And now you're just, you're just drifting. You've done all that you can to keep your life together. And you're just like, God, i got no hope. Some of us are like Paul. Some of you are in a situation just like that because somebody else made a bad decision. Um, how does that really do us? So th I think of business partners. You ever, you know people that go into business together and one of them's really brilliant and the other one's not? And the one that's not brilliant makes the decisions and all the stuff that ends up putting the, the good person bankrupt and the business fails. And sometimes we're in bad places because other people do stupid things. And Paul was like that. Paul didn't do anything wrong. He gave the word. He said, we should not get on this boat. We should not take off. We should not sail. 
but he was at the mercy of other people's decisions. And some of you were here today. Some of you were on a boat in a bad storm because you made really bad decisions. And some of you are on a boat in a bad storm because you're with somebody who made bad decisions. It doesn't really matter, does it? You're still on a boat in a bad storm. The great news is that I can tell you what Paul said to those 276 people in verse 24. Paul said this. Well, verse 23 said, Last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. This is in the middle of the storm. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Now, I know from your reaction that you don't even really get what that means. But here's what it means. Look at the person next to you. They can be a jerk sometimes, can't they? Do they deserve the good grace of God? No. Whose life did God promise Paul he would spare? Paul's? Well, of course, because Paul deserved it, because he's the guy that's writing the New Testament. And all the prisoners on that boat, even the people who made the decision to put everybody in harm's way, God said, I'm going to spare them all. You could be dead now. I mean, literally, God could be within his right he could be holy and just, just simply to strike us all right now. We're not saved because we are good. We are saved because he is good, period. And here's, here's 275 people on a boat that deserve to die, that are going, many of them, to Rome to be killed. And God said, you know what, Paul? I'm not taking any one of them. I'm, gonna, I'm going to graciously spare all of those men. Man, that's amazing. That is a God of Psalm 145, 8. Let's read it real quick. Just turn there real quick. We'll read it. Psalm 145, 8. And some of you, when we read this, you'll be, this will sound really foreign because you've been told that God is a God who beats people up. He's a God who's bloodthirsty. And he is a God who's holy. And he does deal with sin. But Psalm 145, 8, this is the God that those men on that boat met that day. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Tell the person next to you that that's good news. You just lied. That's great news. Number three. So we know that we need to trust the word of God, and we know that life turns on a dime. We're seeing those two. Now, here's the third one. Storms give us a chance to step up. Storms allow us to step up. Not only can we find grace in God's in storms, we also find ourselves with a unique opportunity to step up and lead. Look at the reaction of the prisoners to this storm. Um, we'll start in, in verse 29. Fearing that they would be dashed against the rocks because they're starting to run closer to shore, here's what, here was their response. They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. I just love that. Um, we like to call those flare prayers. 
You ever turn? You ever th- um, shot up a flare before? Yeah, um, flare the flare prayers. I love those. And God's gracious, and sometimes God even hears them and answers them. But a flare prayer is like this: you never have a single conversation with God. You don't read your Bible. You're not walking with Jesus. You might know God, know about God, but you're never hanging out with Him. You're not close to Him. You don't have any relationship. You're closer to the people you pay your bills to than you are to God until you get in trouble and go, Oh, God, help! That's what they did. They don't have any relationship with God. They're not following the God of, of Paul. They're probably tolerating Paul because he's on board. And he's probably talking about Jesus a lot. But as soon as they're pretty sure they're going to die, they dropped four anchors. They did all they could to stop, and then they just fell on their knees and started to pray. They just started sending up flare prayers, 275 flare prayers. That would have been awesome. They tried to save their own skin in verse 30. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea and pretended that they were going to lower some anchors from the boat, from the bow. So... They're sending up flare prayers. They're trying to save their own skin. That's how they reacted. But look how Paul stepped up. Look how he reacted in verse 31. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the soldiers cut the ropes and let the lifeboat fall away. Well, they listened to Paul that time, right? Progress. I think they figured it out. They were going, wait, this is the same guy that told us not to start sailing. And now we're in a really bad storm. And now he's telling us we should stay with the boat. Sounds stupid, but I'm going to believe him because it came true last time. So they cut the boats away. So Paul's starting to step up. He's starting to lead. Uh, There was a, a 19th century theologian. His name was Joseph Parker. And here's what he said about this story. Paul began as a prisoner and ended as the captain. Listen. Children of God, believers, look at me for a second. This is what God does in your life. When there's a storm in your life, do you know what God has given you, graciously given you? He has put you in a position where you can step up and lead people to God. He's actually given you an an opportunity to set an example for people who don't know Jesus. So we complain about storms, we complain about hard times, but God's actually giving you an opportunity to step up and lead. And when we take that opportunity, we have a great impact on people. Look what happens with Paul. Let's just a few more verses. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been, given in constant suspense, you have been in constant suspense, have gone without food, you haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food, you need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread. And he gave thanks to God in front of them all. He broke it and began to eat. So Paul not only has a plan, he sets the example. Paul's no longer like a prisoner. People are, you see how people are looking to Paul now? Like, hey, dude, what do we do? I'll tell you what we do. We're getting ready to run aground. We haven't eaten in 14 days. Man, start eating. And what is the result of that? Verse 36 They were all, everybody say all. They were all encouraged. They were all encouraged. There are times when one dedicated believer can change the whole atmosphere of a situation simply by trusting God and having visible faith. You have that power. 
You have that power. If you have a walk with God, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you're in a hard place and there are other people around you, think about your, your workplace right now. Think about when we went through all the crisis with the economic downturn, all that stuff, and people are looking for any hope, anybody that might have an answer. And guess who they start looking to? They start looking to Christians. They start looking to believers, and you actually have the power. One dedicated believer has the power to change the entire atmosphere of their environment. And Paul did that in a horrible circumstance. Paul, when life turns on a dime, he showed his faith in God, and he encouraged people around him who didn't even know Jesus. So that's three. Number four sounds like a total contradiction. Storms allow us to step down. Let me explain what I mean by that because I don't mean it to be the exact opposite of the third point. So they eventually run ground. Um, verse 28, I mean, chapter 28, verse 1 says, Once safely on shore, because they all had to swim to shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire. They welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. A little campfire on the beach. It's always fun. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood. And I want you to get this. This, this is a quick point. Storms allow us to step down. So Paul, who's single-handedly responsible for, for saving 276 lives? Well, God is, yeah. But humanly, Paul, right? So when they swim ashore and they're all, you know, like on the sand, <gasps> they stand up and they're looking around. They're all looking for Wilson, right? They're looking around. They're on the shore and they realize, hey, everybody's here. Like Paul was right. And look, you didn't even lose any hair. This is fantastic. Paul, you're amazing. And yeah, he starts on these chairs, you know, and they lift him up and they're hoisting him around on his shoulders and they're running around and they're excited. And then they start building a fire because they're cold. And the islanders come out and greet them. And it's like, all hail the New York Giants, right? <laughs> they all start hanging out. They're building a fire. And if any point in his life, Paul could have kicked back and said, you know what? You build the fire. I've done my work. This would be it, right? This is when he would do that, right? But what do people do that really love Jesus? They serve. They serve, even if they don't have to. They serve. And so here's Paul, tired. He's at Malta, and he's gathering wood. And it seems so small. It's so easy to look past it. But no task is too small for the servant of God who has the mind of Christ. Don't turn here. Just listen to me while I read it. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, when you have that mindset, 
There is no task too small. When I was reading and preparing, I found this story about D.L. Moody. Some of you may not know who D.L. Moody was, but pretty big dude. Pretty big guy in, America, in, in, in Christianity and in religion. Um, was responsible for teaching, for writing, for preaching. And so he had, this, he had a, um, like a seminary where he would train students. And it was raining one day, and this mom came in with a prospective student, and she didn't want to walk in the rain, so she saw this guy driving a horse and buggy, and so she was like, cabbie, 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 and the cabbie, you know, the horse came over, and they stopped, and the carriage stopped, and they got up in there, and she said, take us to the school, and so they went to the school, and when they got to the school, she was shocked to see that who had actually driven them there was D.L. Moody. She just mistook him for a cabbie, but he never said, do you not know who I am? He just served her. And that's what believers do. And believers don't just do it when it's convenient. Believers do it when they're on a boat and they barely survived it and they, they swim to shore and their dog get tired and then there's an opportunity to serve. They step up and serve. And what would Paul say to us today? I would serve, but I bruise my pinky. It really hurts when I breathe. What? Probably like, I was shipwrecked, swimming to shore. We're building a fire. Everybody's getting wood, and I'm not above that. Storms allow us to step down. Don't miss opportunities to serve just because we're tired. In fact, sometimes what I have found in my life I said those are the best times to serve. And number five, at the worst times, your enemy is looking for you and the world is looking at you. So they're shipwrecked. Paul's a prisoner at sea. He goes without food for 14 days. He survives a hurricane. He swims to shore. He puts some wood on the fire. And what does it say? He comes out and bites him a snake. Now, I love the phrase, are you kidding me? <laughs> That's when Paul would have said that, right? After all he's been through, and so he finally, you know, he, he reaches, he's building a fire, and a snake jumps out and bites him. He's like, I'm talking about your bad days, right? There's this man, you can look him up on Google. His name is Dave Reaver. I heard him give his testimony one time. He was fighting in the Vietnam War, and he literally picked up a grenade to throw it, and when it was right here, it went off. And so he obviously lost ear, I mean, like his whole face. I mean, he, he's, and he's got his great sense of humor. You know, he describes his day like this. He, the thing goes, it, it, it blows up right here. He's in water, and when he comes to, he said, I literally had to pull myself together because he was like pieces of him were like in the water. He pulls himself together. He said they came and rescued him, and they put him on, like they put him on a stretcher, and they're carrying him to the, to the helicopter, and the stretcher, all the, all, the acid, all the stuff on his body that was in that grenade ate through the fabric of the stretcher. So as they're carrying him, they dropped him. They get on the helicopter, they're flying home, and he hears the radio and how the helicopter is in, they're, they're like sending out these distress signals because the helicopter is going to crash. And he's thinking, well, of course it's going to crash. This is the kind of day that I'm having. And of course I'm going to survive because apparently nothing can kill me. I mean, this is what Paul's going through right now. I mean, of all the stuff that's happened, and this is how he ends the day. Reaching into a fire, being bitten by a snake. Listen. We've got to get this. 1 Peter 5.8 says that we have an enemy who prowls around looking to devour us. And I'm going to tell you what, Satan is so good at piling it on at the wrong time. 
Have you noticed that? One thing goes bad, and then five things went bad. If something breaks in our house, then something's going to break in the car, and then something's going to break somewhere else. That's just the way that it works. He's all about piling it on, and we cannot afford to let our guards down for a single moment. And the crazy thing is, the name Malta means refuge. I would just about bet my left arm that more believers fall to the enemy's tactics in safe places than stormy ones. Because on the boat when it's storming, you're like, okay, we got to do this. All right, I'm focused, right? But then you survive it. You get on shore. You're building a fire because you can do s'mores. You're just kind of like, ah. That's when the enemy attacks. The enemy attacks when you do things like leave a cramped coffee shop and come into more space. Because we all go, whew, we did it. Reaching in a fire, bitten by a viper. You have an enemy who is looking for you, and he does not take days off, and you can't take days off either. Ephesians 6.13 tells us how to make sure that we're ready for the day of evil. Put on the full armor of God. And the enemy is not just looking for you, but the world is looking at you. Acts 28, verses 4 and verses 6. This is what happened after Paul got bitten by the viper. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This guy must be a murderer, because even though he escaped the sea, justice, which was one of their goddesses, justice has not allowed him to live. In verse 6, the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds. Listen, the world's watching you. The world's watching to see how you will respond in the middle of a storm. Sometimes we forget that the world's watching and we do stupid things like pick our nose at stoplights. Right? But people are watching you. We joke around about people that make out in public. And like, do you ever want to walk up to them and say, I can see you. Stop doing that. People are watching you all the time. Even if we didn't have Facebook, they would still be watching you. But now with Facebook, even more. I mean, how many times do you have a conversation with somebody and you know so much about their life just because you saw what they posted on Facebook? And in the middle of the conversation, you're like, I promise I'm not stalking you. I just have Facebook. We know so much. People are watching us all the time. So in verse 4, Paul's a murderer. And in verse 6, he's a god. What made the difference? Verse 5, but Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. Look at how Paul responds in verse 5. So he could have complained about it. He could have um, posted a status on Facebook about it. He could have whipped out his iPhone and Instagrammed a selfie of him and a snake, right? (laughs) But he didn't do that either. Paul didn't make a big deal about it. I don't know what you would do if you were bitten by a snake. I don't like snakes, okay? There's not a good snake. I know some of you live on, like, land, and you'll tell me, no, certain kinds of snakes are good. No, they're all evil, and and they're all the devil. So if I see any snake, he's going to be bashed. If I got bitten by a snake, I'd be like, (laughs) I'd be like a girl. Paul gets bitten by a snake. He goes, huh. He just shook it off. Can I give you a piece of advice? 
If you don't remember anything else I say today, some of you, your lives would be a lot better if you would just learn how to shake things off. Just shake it off. Don't hold on to it. Because you know what? People will always bite you. They'll always hurt you. That's because we're all living still. Because we're not all sanctified yet. Because some of us have bad days. It just happens. And instead of taking things so personally, if you're doing the bait of Satan, this is going to sound familiar. Instead of taking an offense at that, just shake it off. And where did he shake it off? In the fire. You know where you shake things off? I mean, you get in the presence of God. Just get in the presence of God. Let his fire begin to consume you. Man, shake that stuff off. And he suffered no ill effects. Sometimes we're so good at holding on, just holding on to that snake. I got a little snake, a little pet snake. I knew a guy that he used to love to get little lizards and put them right here so the lizard would clamp down on his ear, like have lizard earrings. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> For what it's worth, okay, um, this is just, as your pastor, I want to give you this, okay? Mark 16, 18. Mark 16, 18 says that they will, those that follow Jesus, signs and wonders will follow them. They will pick up snakes and not be hurt. And so I believe that that verse is talking specifically about this passage. This is how that happens. Um, I'm not slamming people. I just want to give you clarification because you may have relatives that are preachers who love to handle snakes while they preach. But I don't believe that that's the application of Mark 16, 18. I believe that this is, that we will go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes in so doing, we will be bitten by snakes and we can shake them off and suffer no ill effects because we are protected by Jesus. Shake it off. Shake it off into the fire. And then here's how the whole story ends. I love this. Everybody take a deep breath. Turn to your neighbor and says, it's going to get worse. All right? So Paul does all of this. And as a result of all of this faithfulness, here's the door that God opens for Paul. Let's see. We are in verse, chapter 28. We are in verse 7. Because, you know, the people just changed, they went from he's a murderer to he's a God. So there was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius. What a name. And Publius was the chief official of the island, so he is the head honcho, even with a name like Publius, right? So Publius is the chief official on the island, and the doors opened for Paul to go and hang out with him. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. So for three days they're hanging out with Publius, the most important man on the island, and they're hanging, they're eating, they're drinking, they're getting, it's like, when I took, I took some kids on a 21-mile backpacking trip one time, I mean, it was, the best thing we had to eat every morning was, like, instant oatmeal, but when we parked a car and we were done, we got in, we drove to a pizza inn and had a pizza buffet, oh, dude, I mean, are you watching anything like Get Out Alive with Bear? Grillis and, and like people that get to go to the food pit and they just eat all the time because they're so hungry. That's what my kids were like after that trip. There's like they just they just scarfed all the pizza down. 
I, I picture it here. I mean, they went 14 days without eating, and now three days of feasting. Are you kidding me? So Paul's got to be thinking, this is the life, right? I finally have made it. Have you ever felt like that? Like, I've been faithful. I've done what I was supposed to do. And yeah, sometimes it sucked, but here I am. Woohoo! And at the end of three days, Publius says, hey, Paul, I got a dad, and he's sick. And you seem to be the guy that would want to pray for him because I, I heard about you with the snake and all, and you didn't, get, you didn't die from that, and people think you're a god. Um, would you mind praying for him to be healed? Paul's like, absolutely. What, what's he got? Dysentery. If you don't know what dysentery is, it's, it's just really bloody diarrhea. It's nasty. It's the kind of diarrhea that you can't really, I mean, it's hard to control diarrhea anyway. <laughs> Right, but we learn how to, don't we? Oh, please, don't we? Okay, good, because I'm going to make all of you stand up in case you have it right now. I mean, I hope you can control diarrhea, right? But this guy's got dysentery, and Paul, after all that he's been through, is given the great assignment of praying for a man with bloody diarrhea. Listen, you'll hear me say it until you want to throw things at me. If you can't serve, you don't know Jesus. Sometimes we are all about the glamorous ministry jobs. God is not about the glamorous ministry jobs. God is about the people that need him. And he's looking for people that he can trust to send to those people. And so we think in terms of man, right? I mean, because we are men and women, so we're human, and we think like this. If I do a really good job, I get a really good reward. And the reward's going to be money, a nice car, a really awesome house, a promotion at work. And on man's level, that sometimes is true, isn't it? I mean, we do work hard, and we do get, do you ever like to get a bonus at work? Yeah. They don't normally hand out bonuses to lazy people. Right? Performance bonuses like, um, hey, we'd like to give you something, but you just sit on your butt all the time, so it's not going to happen. But we're going to give your bonus to this person who's working all the time and making us lots of money. So, I mean, on a human level, absolutely that works. But in the kingdom of God, have you not noticed that sometimes the more faithful you are, the, the opportunities that God wants to entrust you with, the precious moments to God are the people who are the least in this world, that need Jesus the most. And he's looking for people, for a church, for believers, that he says, I can trust this person to not just go, oh, let's pray for that bloody diarrhea. <laughs> Jesus, come out. I mean, not now. Ugh. He's looking for people that would cherish the opportunity to pray for a man who probably has been neglected because of his condition. Let's not be the people who are above those situations. When we're faithful, even on the days that we think we've earned time off, God will entrust more and more opportunities to us for ministry in the lives of people that are far from God. And because of how Paul handled the storm, I love how this whole story ends. He finds favor and honor with the people in Malta, and it says that everyone with him was blessed. Verse 9, when this happened, the rest of the sick, when he, he prayed for the, the man with the bloody diarrhea and he was healed. 
And when this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. Because I don't know about how you are, but if I've got <laughs> if I've got dysentery and somebody prays for me and is healed, I'm telling everybody. Dude, you, you need to, I mean, he's washed his hands, but you need to get him to pray for you. Because he healed me of what? Dysentery. And everybody comes. And everybody's cured. And look at verse 10. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Because how much supplies did they have on the boat? None. They had to throw them all over. And God rewarded them. And who got blessed with supplies? Paul and 275 other people who may still not even be following Jesus. Man, I'm telling you how you handle storms. Yes, you're blessed, but you end up affecting people around you. You end up doing things that bring them honor and bring them blessing and bring them reward. And do you know, I'm just guessing as we continue to read, Paul's probably a fairly popular dude on boat. They're like, I'm going to hang out with him. Anything he says, they're going to do. They're going to trust the word of God more because of how he handled that storm. When he could have, probably, if he wanted to, pulled a Jonah. And just said, well, I told you not to sail. You're a bunch of idiots. So I'm leaving you with the centurion and with the captain of the boat and the owner of the boat. And I'm going overboard because I know my God will send a fish. He's done it once. He'll do it again and I'll be okay. He didn't do that. He responded with concern for the people on the boat. Because of how Paul handled the storm, they found favor. They found honor. Everyone was blessed. It reminds me a lot of the Moravians who stood on that boat in 1736 and were watched by a young John Wesley. And how they handled that storm is what opened the door for Jesus to save Wesley and then use him to change our world. I want you to know something. Whether the Methodist Church today believes all that Wesley believes Every Methodist church is in our world today because of that boat in 1736. And if you extend it out to the Wesleyan denomination and other denominations who have come from the Methodist, I can't even begin to imagine how many churches there are in our world today that are there simply because a man stood on the deck of a stormy ship in 1736 and watched people that feared God Respond with peace in God. And you're telling me we can't have that same impact? The storm that you're in right now, whether it's because you were stupid or somebody else was stupid, how you're responding right now, you have the, uh, the power, the ability, the opportunity to affect the world just like that. And it all depends on you letting God prepare you now for the storms. Because storms can't scare you when you let the Lord prepare you. How do we prepare for the storm? Last, last passage, then we're done. At the end of the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached, Matthew chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but it starts in verse 24. Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon he ever preached, here was Jesus' altar call. All right, guys, I know you're a little bit confused. I've been talking a lot about, you know, adultery and stealing and murder and all that stuff and looking at women the right and the wrong way. And we've said stuff about offerings and alms. And anyway, I think there might be something about, you know, blessing people and cutting hands off and whatever. But here we go. Let me just wrap it up like this, guys. 
you got two kind of people. One's going to build a house over here, and it's going to be on rock. And one's going to build a house over here, and it's going to be on sand. I know you got two people that are different, and you got two different types of houses, and you got two different foundations. Both of those people have one thing in common. They're both going to get hit by a storm. So you better build your house on the right foundation because there's no way that house is going to last when this one will. And don't you know at that point, I mean, if they're smart people, are they not saying, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, Jesus, Lord, God, whatever? How do we make sure we're building that house? And he said, when you hear these words of mine and put them into practice, you build that house. Listen, we've been lied to. We've been told if we'll just build the right kind of house and make sure we give God an hour at the gathering, an hour and 45 minutes on Sunday, then somehow our faith will last. And that's baloney. The only way your faith lasts is if you hear these words of Jesus and put them into practice. James says, do not be a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. Hear them, do them, and live. And when you do that, somehow God begins to prepare you. And you face a storm, and it's not like it's not bad, because it says, if you read that in Matthew 7, the same, I think it's 18 words to describe the storm. The same words are used for the good builder and the bad builder. The winds came, the waters rose, they beat against that house. Everybody faces the same storms. You were not exempted because you're a Christian. As a Christian, you have an opportunity to bring God glory because your house stands when that one doesn't. And it all starts by hearing the word of God. You've heard it today and putting it into practice. Which means you can't come on Sundays and get a fix from me. And then hope that you remember it until the next week. What you hear today, you have to live today and tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and the other six days of the week. And then you come back next Sunday and guess what you are? Stronger because... You heard them and did them. I've told my sons a long time, the purpose of the Word of God, two things, learn it and live it. That's why we read the Bible, to learn it and to live it. Christians, for the most part, have done a fairly decent job of learning it. We have programs in churches to help you memorize Scripture. We don't do a good job of living it, which is why it's hard to fill churches today. But if we, you know how we fill this place? Not with the best music, although we got good music. Not with the best preaching, I'm doing the best I can. Not with the best sound system, not even with the best lights, not because we have a magic orange wall. Although if you look at it long enough, it's like a magic orange wall. We'll fill this place because you will rub up against people in work and as you're running and as you're fishing and they will look at you and say, you are different not in the good times. You are different in the horrible times. And why is that? And you say, because I have built my faith on the foundation of a rock. His name is Jesus. He teaches me in the Bible, and I do it. And they'll say, where do you go to church? Can I come with you someday? And you'll say, sure. But let's don't wait till Sunday. 
Let's talk to Jesus right now. That's how this place will feel. Because the world is hungry for that. And so when the world watches you and you think that they're hoping that you fall, they're hoping that you don't fall. They're hoping that you will be the one person who proves to them that there really is the possibility of a God who does exist and does live and does have something to do with everyday life. And believe it or not, I believe this, the world is cheering for you to stand strong in storms because they so desperately need hope. Storms won't scare you when you let the Lord prepare you.